Lord God, again, you are so good. We just stand in awe of your goodness. Um, we thank you for people like Rob and Christy and their willingness to go up to the reservation to proclaim your glory and to lead people to the throne of grace and to talk about the greatness of Jesus. And I pray that you would give them great success in that ministry, Lord, that they would see people bow down before you, their lives surrendered to you. I pray that you would provide for them all of their needs. We know that you're so good in that regard, too, that you take care of all of our needs. Alleviate their anxiety over the work that they're doing and the support that they have, and I pray that you would lift them up and sustain them through that. And we thank you that we get to have this partnership with them, that the work that you're doing in Maricopa Springs is work that you're doing through Maricopa Springs, not just here in Maricopa, but other places as well. And so we, we just feel blessed and honored to be able to do that. Would you continue to give us those opportunities? And we pray that what you do for your kingdom through this church would resonate, would ripple out, uh, not just in Maricopa, but to the ends of the earth and from generation to generation, that through our church people might see the glory of Christ. And we thank you so much for your word, Lord. This word that you have spoken to us and in speaking you have allowed us to know you. We think about the nature of relationships and how they come through conversation, through, through words, through hearing and listening. And Lord, how privileged we are then to think about the fact that you have spoken to us and you've given us this word so that we might know you. I pray that we would know you more this morning. In Christ's name, amen. Uh, so at the height of World War II, our country, America, was engaged in an activity that consumed a singular obsession for our country. To win this war, to stop this ludicrous bloodshed, this insanity that had begun in Europe and dragged the whole world into this conflict, America as a country put every ounce of energy towards this one particular goal, this one objective, this one obsession. It was obviously to win the war, right? You've heard maybe these stories. Mothers who previously in our culture had never done work outside of the home for the most part went to work in factories to build warplanes and to build tanks. I thought this is fascinating. Get this. The American Fat Salvage Committee was started to teach families to save their bacon grease at home so that the bacon grease could be shipped off to make glycerin for explosives, right? Young children would take their radio flyer wagons and go around the neighborhoods collecting steel and tin in whatever form they could find it so it could be recycled and used to make submarines and battleships. And of course, just about every able-bodied man, both of my grandfathers, were enlisted into the military if they could serve to go overseas, either in the South Pacific or Europe, to engage in this war that was a necessity. America as a country developed a singular obsession to win the war. And as I think about the church, this question we've been kind of talking about, what is the church? Like really fundamentally, what is the church? I want us to understand that the church is a body of people who share a singular obsession. Like America in World War II, it's not an obsession to end a war, thank goodness. 
It's just this. It's just a simple obsession, a singular obsession with Jesus Christ. The church through the centuries has been known for doing a myriad of wonderful things in the world to make the human experience better. I mean, go do some research here on church history or history of the Western world. It's incredible what Christians have done. Wonderful things like feeding the poor, establishing hospitals, teaching literacy, things like what Rob and Arizona Reservation Minister are up to, building homes for people who don't have them, caring for the dying, housing orphans and widows, ending slavery, seeking justice. These are just some of the things that the church has done to make the world a better place. But you need to understand, all of those things are only byproducts of a much, much larger understanding of what has always burned at the core, at the center of the Christian experience, an unbridled infatuation with the Son of God. This singular obsession with Jesus as Messiah, a wholehearted devotion to the knowledge of Christ as King and Lord and Savior. We stand as believers here at Maricopa Springs on the backs of the giants who have gone before us, who with a loyal allegiance labored with all of their lives under this sole ambition to deliver to the world Christ as King, to deliver to the generations that would come after them the truth of Jesus, the Son of God, crucified and risen according to the promises of the Scriptures. And that ambition, that ambition alone and primarily has always defined the church, a singular obsession for Jesus Christ as Lord. And with these faithful saints before us, then I think we need to ask ourselves a question. Do we stand in that same tradition as a church? Is that the tradition under which we find ourselves? With these faithful saints before us, we need to ask ourselves, do we stand in that tradition? At Maricopa Springs, do we share in this singular ambition? I know there's a bird in here, right? (laughs) I thought it was flying behind me. I'm going to get back to this, but just so you guys know that this is not uncommon at Maricopa Springs. When we first started our church, we met at Global Water, beautiful building that had these big glass windows. And I was, of course, in like the most, you know, emphatic moment of my message one day. I see a couple of you nodding because you were there. You remember when this bird flew right into the window and basically self-destructed behind my message. And it was just over. I mean, we should have just sent everybody home because I wasn't going to get people's attention back. Fortunately, Lindsay was there, and she loves birds, and she was able to, I think, did you save the bird? Did you save it? Did it make it? Okay, we'll just leave it at that. We'll, we'll hope for the best from there. Let me come back to this question, okay, because I think it really is significant. Knowing what has defined the church, this singular obsession for Jesus, we need to ask ourselves at Maricopa Springs, like, is that what is at the core of who we are and what we do? When the people of our city look at our church, apart from the strange bird experiences that we have, do they truly see, do they instantly come to this conclusion that who we are as a church above all else is that we are singularly obsessed with Jesus? A few weeks ago, I was talking with a lady uh, who I have kind of just interacted with because of our children are, are both in some activities together. 
and uh, I had heard that she had left the Mormon religion. And so uh, I asked her, I said, you know, why don't you come check out our church? And her response to me was, you know, I'm just done with church and religion for a while. And all I could think to say to her, like, I'm not very good at this. I'm not very tactful. All I could think to say to her was, listen, if you like Jesus, you should come check out our church. And later I realized just what a lame response that was. I probably could have been more articulate and more poignant. There were so many other things I could have said that might have hit home. But, but listen, the central idea was there, even if I didn't communicate it very well, right? I didn't want her to like my religion. I didn't care. I honestly didn't even want her to like my church, as awesome as I think you guys are and as much as I love you. I wanted her to like Jesus, to love Jesus. That's truly what I cared about, to come to see how beautiful he is, to understand the wonder of his grace and to share in our singular obsession for him. And because the truth is, this lady, she doesn't know it. I I hope you know it, but maybe you don't. But humans were created for a singular obsession with Jesus. Like, that's why you were made. That's your purpose for existence. And God has given the world, the church, as the vehicle through which the world might come to know that the all-satisfying purpose for their lives is to have this singular obsession with Christ, to be nurtured in it. So again, I ask, is your life as a Christian, is it defined by a singular obsession with Jesus? When people see you, do they look at you like a moth? I mean, have you seen this where they just smash their head again and again up against the light? And you look at that and you go, that behavior is so bizarre, but the moth is so enthralled by what it sees that it can't find anything else to do but seek it. And maybe they don't understand the obsession, right? Like, I can't understand why the moth behaves that way. Of course, they're not going to understand it if they've never tasted Christ themselves. But will people at least see it? When they think of you, will they think, man, there is a singular obsession with Jesus. Look at these verses with me in 2 Corinthians. This is just a couple of them. Chapter 4. And I would love for you to go home today and to read verses 1 through 6, because I think it's a beautiful passage. But I'm just going to look at verses 5 through 6, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 5 through 6. And I always like to say this, we have extra Bibles. If you don't own one, it would be our great privilege to give one to you. In the back of the room at our Welcome Center, you can connect with Nick after the service and he'll give one to you. Let me read this. For what we, verse 5 again, for what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. I heard a good quote recently that goes like this, preach Jesus, die, and be forgotten. The idea being that history does not need to know my name. History needs to know the name of Jesus. 
And I get the sense that Paul would have wholeheartedly agreed with this idea. If it weren't for him being an apostle who was inspired by the Holy Spirit of God to write the very words of God that we now read as Scripture, I think Paul would have been eager to have his name scrubbed from the history books so that the name of Christ would shine all the brighter. And he says to the church in Corinth that what he proclaims is not Paul. It's Christ as Lord, the Son of God, the Messiah of prophecy. And in his work of pointing people to Jesus, Paul is happy to see himself as nothing more than a servant to the church. Man, that's no position of greatness to essentially be a slave to the body of believers. What I find very interesting here is even as Paul labors to build the church, to be a servant to build the church, who does Paul see himself working for? Like the goal is to proclaim Christ to build the church, and who does he see himself working for? Does he see himself working for the church? In fact, no. He he sees himself working for the sake of Jesus with the church as beneficiary. And so Paul's singular obsession with Jesus is so deeply rooted in his bones that he labors not for his own name or his own fame, but for the name of Christ. And he labors not for the sake of the church, but for the sake of Jesus. And of course, the church grows and benefits from his obsession. By this singular obsession with Christ, the church is blessed. And on every side of the equation, from every angle, Paul sees only Jesus as what he labors towards and what motivates his labors. What he proclaims is Christ, and why he proclaims it is Christ. Now again, honestly, do we see it this way? I mean, the things that we do together as a church, are they first and foremost born out of an obsession for Jesus? Or could we dig down deep, honestly, at home as we evaluate and find some other kind of motivation lurking below the surface? You know, I I passionately love the church. Like, I wouldn't do this if I didn't passionately love the church. But I, I do have to confess that at times my love for the church leads me to put the church before Christ. And the example that Paul gives us is that everything that we do blossoms out of our singular obsession for Jesus. The church benefits, thank God. But let God sustain the life of the church and secure its existence. Let us look only to Christ to proclaim him. So let me try and just ask this evaluation question again before I move on. Because I think it's important and, and I think it's an idea we can get easily distracted from. Can you say... Can you say that your life ambition is to make much of Jesus? You don't have to be a pastor to answer yes to that. Like maybe you're like, Grady, it doesn't apply to me because I'm not in full-time ministry. Listen, let me just give you a couple examples in this idea. Can you say that whatever you labor at, you do it for the sake of Christ? As you lead your family or you serve your family, do you put Christ first And love your spouse and your children for Christ's sake? Here's a funny one. As you save for retirement, is your singular obsession to do that for the glory of God? As you advance in your career standing or you advance in your influence in the community, your neighborhood or whatever, can you say like Paul that what you proclaim is not yourself but Jesus Christ as Lord? 
as you build relationships, as you plan for the future, as you live out your marriage, as you work or serve in the church, or even as you pursue your hobbies and your interests, do you do it all for Jesus' sake? Now, I would imagine some of you might be sitting there thinking, come on, Grady, seriously, this is so unrealistic. I'm just trying to live my life here. I don't need Jesus getting all, all up in my business. I mean, even this question, Grady, seriously, what do you mean? Am I saving for retirement for the glory of Christ? What a dumb question that is. What do you mean I should pursue my hobbies and interests and relationships and career goals for the sake of Christ? That's just ludicrous. Nobody can actually live like that. You know what, Grady? You're actually beginning to sound a bit like a zealot, and you should just calm down because nobody's going to take you seriously when you go that far. But friends, don't you see this is how Paul lived his life. What we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord. I don't always knock it out of the park, but that's how I strive to live my life. You understand it's what Scripture commands, right? Colossians 3 when it says, Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. Or 1 Corinthians 10 when it says, So whether you eat or you drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. When was the last time you ate pizza for the glory of God? Again, sounds like a stupid question, doesn't it? But have you ever considered the fact that you could eat pizza for the glory of God? Sounds like such a main thing, mundane thing. But even eating pizza can be done for the glory of God. Paul gives us an example of such a singular obsession with Jesus that even the very act of eating and drinking can be undertaken for the sake of Christ. So am I a zealot? Yes, absolutely. Because I want to have a singular obsession for Jesus. I found a great definition of the word obsession. I I think it lays it out well. Just listen for a second, and and I'm going to read it twice because it's a little technical. Obsession is a persistently recurring thought or feeling that is not experienced as voluntarily produced, but rather as something that invades consciousness, an all-consuming preoccupation with something. Obsession is a persistently recurring thought or feeling that is not experienced as voluntarily produced, but rather as something that invades consciousness, an all-consuming preoccupation for something. And I can't help but smell Paul in that definition, right? For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your, or your servants for Jesus' sake. And to belong to Jesus is not merely to attend church or be a good person. It is to enter into a lifelong and singular obsession for him. Okay, I'm sure by now you get the idea, right? Maybe you're frustrated, though, because you're really not there and you're not sure how to proceed. How do we actually cultivate this obsession? And I think that it's through knowledge, Paul tells us, we grow this obsession. Look at verse 6. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. 
I'm going to delve into this idea of knowledge, but before I get there, I want you to see something here. Paul makes it very clear that it is God who gives us this knowledge. It is God who says light shall shine in darkness so that we have this saving knowledge of Jesus. And it may be that some of you in this room this morning, you don't have a singular obsession with Jesus because God hasn't yet turned the lights on. That's why. And in the simplest of terms, to be a Christian means that God has done something for you. God has done something in you. God has made you alive. God has turned on the lights. And unless that happens, understand that you are still, in fact, in the dark. And I say this because I imagine that maybe some of you, you've been attending church for years, hanging around church for years, but your experience of church is really more this feeling of frustration because you go to church and you hear that you need to be a better Christian, and then you go home and you try to do that, but it never really works very well. And it may be the reason why that is the case is because you've been trying to see God through the darkness of your own ability. And God hasn't yet flicked the lights on. And if that's the case, then just squinting your eyes and trying harder to see him in the dark is not going to work. What you need to do is instead cry out to him to flick the lights on, to let his light pierce the darkness so you can see the glory of God in the face of Christ. Call out to him to open your eyes to the saving knowledge of who Jesus is. Call out to God to show you the face of Christ so that you can truly see and not be blind any longer. And listen, I promise you, I promise you that when you see the fullness of the face of Christ shining so bright that it pierces your heart, then what you will find is a new and singular obsession with Jesus as well. You won't always knock it out of the park either, but you will find a growing, bizarre obsession for the Son of God And you'll find with that the power to seek him and to know him. You won't think of me as some ranting and raving crazy zealot, but you'll begin to experience the same burning in your soul that I feel. The same burning in your soul like Paul to know only Christ Jesus and for his sake to do everything that you do. And God alone can work that transformation in you by turning the lights on, by giving you the knowledge of Christ. Now, if God has done that and turned the lights on so that the light of the glory of Christ shines in your heart, then I would say it's still by knowledge that you grow in this singular obsession, okay? For the Christian, the whole life is growing in knowledge of Christ. And as we look to the face of Christ, our knowledge of him grows. And as we come to know him more, we come to desire him more because we see what a beautiful, precious treasure he is. And so I want us to consider this knowing in four different ways to help us understand it better, okay? Because, listen, to have the glory or have the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ is not simply mental assent to the fact that Jesus is Lord. Do you understand that the scriptures tell us that even the demons acknowledge that God is one, meaning that Christ is Lord, but they're not saved, They have the mental assent, but it's not a saving piece of knowledge that they have. 
To have knowledge does not mean that we stop at understanding that Jesus rose from the dead, died and rose from the dead. All kinds of people who remain in the darkness can echo that truth from the darkness. To truly have knowledge is to look on the face of God in Christ Jesus, to trust him, to have his heart, to be transformed. It is a spiritual perception that begins to see Christ everywhere and in everything, always at the center of all that you see. So specifically, I want to tell you, this knowledge, to grow in it, this knowledge has four different things. I'm already a ways into this, so maybe you're beginning to fade. If you can't grab all four of these, grab at least one, okay? First of all, that we recognize him. That we love him, secondly. That we worship him, third. And that we follow him. Let me say him again, and then I want to spend a minute on each of these. We recognize Christ. We love Christ. We worship Christ. And we follow Christ. When it comes to recognizing Christ, if we don't continually look to him, then we're never going to recognize him. And if we don't recognize him for who he is, then we're never going to be obsessed with him. Infants know who their mommy and their daddy are because they recognize their facial features. They know the sounds of their voices. These are indicators that let them know that they're safe. Uh, Not too long ago, I was up in Ahwatukee, and I stopped in the grocery store to pick something up. I don't remember what it was. And there was my sister-in-law in in line, like right in front of me with her baby. And uh, as soon as I peered into his little carrier, do you know what he did? He began to bawl just weeping. He was terrified of me and my ugly mug. But then you ask the question, why wouldn't he be, right? I've only spent a marginal amount of time with him. I don't know, how old is he, like nine months or something like that? He doesn't recognize me. And yet every time I've been around them, in contrast, as soon as he looks at his mommy or his daddy, he gets this big smile on his face. And it's impossible for us to cultivate a singular obsession with Jesus if we don't recognize him. You can't keep Christ at a distance and still recognize him and then be enamored with him. This is why it's important and why I tell you and encourage you, read Scripture. See Christ there. Pray. Find him in the silence where he settles your anxious heart. Let him show himself to you as you fellowship with other believers. In small groups or on the study of the word or over a meal, God uses those people and those moments to teach us further about himself. And in order for us to know the light of Christ, we have to look to him. We have to recognize him. We have to spend time becoming familiar with his features, learning the contours of his character. And this is why in 1 Corinthians, or I'm sorry, right, right here in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 1, Paul says that he doesn't lose heart. Even though he is up against so much opposition, he, does, he never loses heart because he recognizes Christ in his goodness and his faithfulness. He sees Christ. And the knowledge of Christ emboldens his heart. And when we gaze on his beauty in these ways, our passion for him, it necessarily increases. It can do no other. But to know Christ means not only that we recognize him, but we love him. We have to move beyond knowing things about him to actually having intimacy with him. Get this, my children, they don't actually know that much about me. 
They, they have no idea how much I weigh. They don't know how tall I am. If you ask them where I lived, they couldn't tell you my address. If you gave my children like a quiz, a, a knowledge test in terms of information, a data sheet about daddy, they would fail. But you know what? I, I literally cannot sit down anywhere in my house without one of my kids crawling up into my lap. Because they know me, they love me, they have an intimate knowledge of me. I'm not saying that we shouldn't know things about God. We should know things about God. We should be curious about doctrine and good theology. How blessed we are that our God has decided to reveal himself to us. And whatever he has chosen to reveal, we should seek to know on an informational level. That is important. But those things that we might come to know as facts are no substitution for having intimate fellowship with God, for knowing him in intimacy. My children couldn't answer a questionnaire about me, but you know what? They desire me. They seek to be near me. They are hungry for my affection. And God has shown in our hearts to give us the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus. And you understand that light not only touches the senses of the eyes, but it touches the senses of feeling as well, right? I mean, go stand in the sun on a cool day like today, and you feel its warmth on your skin. And when we know Christ, likewise, he warms our hearts. And the warmth of his affection, it, it grows our passion, our desire for him. The more we know it, the more our obsession for him becomes a singular obsession. And so to grow in our knowledge of Christ is to grow in our love for him, and to love him is to develop a singular obsession for him. But understand, too, that our love for him, our, our obsession with Christ, it doesn't mean that we just take, 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 take from him in what he gives. You understand that that's a dysfunctional obsession, Right? As we grow in our knowledge of Christ through the light that God imparts in our hearts, we hunger to give our hearts back to him. That's what I want to call worship. We turn back to him what he has blessed us, what he has given us. We see the beauty of Christ as the light that grows, and we long to dive deeper into that beauty. Uh, Not too long ago, this mic is driving me crazy, I'm sorry. Not too long ago, I had a good friend of mine come to town from Boston with his wife and his two kids, and they really wanted to see the Grand Canyon. And we didn't want to drive up there in two cars because they were only here for a couple of days, so we went to the airport and we rented a 15-passenger van so we could get all six car seats and all four adults in that thing and drive up to the Grand Canyon. No joke, when we got to the Grand Canyon, the lady at the booth asked us, is this a commercial tour? And we were like, no, 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 it's just, we just have lots of car seats. Um, but anyway, when we got to the edge of the Grand Canyon, it was so beautiful. Have you been there? It's gorgeous. It's astounding. And before we left, I mean, we didn't have a ton of time, but before we left, we looked at the same hole in the ground from 30 different angles and had not yet explored the beauty of what we were seeing. There was still so much more to see. And I could have driven around to the other side, the north rim, and viewed it from that angle. I could have climbed down inside and looked up at it and seen how spectacular it is from there. I could have looked at it at at night or on a rainy day or on a day of full sunshine. I could have seen it from a myriad of other views and angles. 
And the greater my knowledge became of the Grand Canyon, the more I had seen the Grand Canyon. You know what? The more praiseworthy I found it to be. And the point is this, to see the glory of God in the face of Christ is to have our hearts well up in worship to God for his beauty and his goodness. And we can look at the character, the nature, the beauty, the goodness of God from so many different angles. And you know what? Each different angle of seeing him draws our hearts ever deeper into worship. We don't just want to take, take, take. We want to give, give, give. And you cannot know God and not desire to give your heart to him. That's what your heart was made for. That's what it means to know him. It's not that the mind alone is tickled by mere facts about who he is. The heart, too, is filled with joy and ecstasy and gazing upon the light of Christ. And you understand, this is why continually around the throne of God, the living creatures, as Scripture describes them, they just, for all eternity, fly around the throne of God, crying out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, proclaiming worship to God. And you see, the dry, dead, lifelessness of religion, it knows nothing of worshiping the risen Christ. Because it doesn't know his light. It doesn't know his warmth. But to grow in our knowledge of God is to offer ever more of our hearts to him in worship. Finally, to have knowledge of Christ is to follow him. It's to long to be where he is. Where your treasure is, that's where your heart will be. As we come to know Jesus, we come to see what a treasure he is. We actually see that he is the only treasure. All of this could pass away and it would mean nothing to us so long as we have Christ. And when God gives us that knowledge, then we want nothing more than to be with him where our heart is. I had this thought several years ago. You know, the truth is, Humanity has had probably every good thought already, so I never have a good one. Most of them I take from somebody else. But I think maybe I had one good thought, which I probably did at some point steal from somebody. It's a decent idea that I'd like to contribute to mankind, and so I have uh, probably worked it into my message before. And it's just this, okay? And, And think about this idea. Sometimes we as Christians need to stop trying so hard to be like Jesus and try a lot harder to be with Jesus. Do you understand that? Many people understand Christianity as this effort, the human effort to be like God. But that is totally false and it's incredibly discouraging because you're like a hamster in a wheel. You just never make progress. But what Christianity really is, understand this, it is the persistent effort to come into the presence of the Lord so that he transforms us. Because when we find ourselves in his presence and his light shines upon us and the eyes of our heart are open to the glory of God in the face of Christ, then we comprehend with greater depth how high, how wide, how deep, how great his love for us is, then God begins to do this work of transforming us, telling us who we are in Christ, not who we should be by our own efforts. 
And this is, again, why I asked you a few weeks ago, man, if you got to heaven and all heaven was was this 10 by 10 room with you and Jesus in it, would you be disappointed? Like, would you feel there's something missing, something else that I need to be satisfied? Because, again, understand, the, the, the truth is, the more we know about the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, the more we see there is nothing for us to have beyond Christ. He's it. He's the only treasure. And so to follow him is to have our understanding of him constantly grown so that our hearts burn with this singular obsession, Jesus. Now let me just say in closing, really this is closing, I promise, okay? It is not my job to tell you how to have a better life or how to be a better person. That is, in fact, why some people go to church, because they're looking for that information. And maybe sometimes you wish my preaching had more of that. I'm sorry if I disappoint you in that way. But you need to understand that's not how I see my role as a preacher and teacher of God's Word. Like Paul, like Paul, it is my job to impart to you the knowledge of Jesus so that we all together as a church share in this one singular obsession that defines the bride of Christ— For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for his sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Let me pray for us. God, what more could I ask than that you would give us this singular obsession? That seems wholly appropriate this morning. That you would put into our hearts a burning passion for you. That you would grow our knowledge of you, not just our facts about you, but our love for you, our commitment to follow you, our desire for you. God, we ask you to do these things because we are, we are frail and we are weak and we are poor and we are broken. And apart from you, we, we can do nothing. And so, Lord, would you put into our hearts this vision of the light of the glory of God in the face of Christ? And would you give us for him a singular obsession, we pray. Amen.